Take your Bibles this morning. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. A little bit of a reminder of where we've been, a little bit of a heads up of where we're headed this morning. Uh, last week, we were talking about the persecuted church there in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul writing to them as a persecuted church. He doesn't say, here's five steps to combat the persecution. He doesn't say, here's uh, three things that you should do in order to overcome persecution. What he does in chapter one is gives them the picture of what's to come, of when Jesus will come and rule and reign. Evil will be done away with. Persecution will end. And so in the here and now, Paul says to endure, to continue, knowing that full well Jesus will restore everything to where it should be. Right? So, so the, the future hope, this future glory, is what Paul would say in the midst of persecution we look to. Okay, this week we're going to continue talking about the, the things of the future as it were. Okay, now, now a couple of things that I want to say as we dive into chapter 2. Uh, when we read through it a couple weeks ago, read through the whole letter that Paul wrote, uh, I, there's a couple comments about chapter 2. There's a good chance that you're going to leave this morning with more questions about chapter 2 than answers. Like, like, I'm not going to stand up here dogmatically and say, this is exactly what this passage means. This is exactly what this verse means. Uh, where there's some things that maybe we could go further down. A lot of things we could maybe go further down. We're just not going to go down that road this morning. Right? We're, we're going we're gonna to stick mostly to what Paul has said. And so there's going to be a couple of things. It's like, you know what? Revelation's got a whole lot to say about that. There's chapters in Daniel, maybe even Isaiah, that we could go to. And, and yet the, the, the goal for my goal this morning is let's stick to, to chapter 2. Okay, so with that being said, we'll see this in a second, but Paul doesn't necessarily give a whole lot of detail, right? Like Paul doesn't say like, okay, we're, we're going to read about this apostasy and he just uses one word and leaves it. So, so it's not like he says, hey, here's the apostasy and let me tell you about it. It's like, here's this apostasy, done, period, that's it. That's all he says about it. Okay, so, so there's going to be a lot of like, all right, what do we do with this? How do we answer it? How do we not answer it? But the goal this morning is to say, here's what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Here's, here's what he said. And, and the goal then is what? Is to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, in this text, I, I, for me, I don't think it's too hard to see what the main thing is. Okay, so, so that's where we want to land this morning. That's where we want to spend more of our time. That's what we want the takeaway to be. So if we leave here and, and the thought and, you know, in discussion group, if the first question is, does this all happen before or after our rapture? Like, does this happen? Like, like, then we miss the point. Like, that's not Paul's point. It's not the timeline. It's not the chart. It's not the order of events. Uh, that's not the main thing this morning. Okay, so I want us to be able to land on the main thing, keep the main thing, the main thing. With that being said, as we go through this text this morning, we'll read the, all of chapter 2. I'm not planning on finishing all of chapter 2. I just, I couldn't do it. Uh, but that was the plan originally. It's not going to happen today. We'll read all of it. It's all one thought. And then the goal is to get through verse 12. 13 through 16 is his prayer. So we'll save his prayer based on this passage that we're reading this morning for next week. Okay, but let's read all of chapter 2, and, and we're going to go through this in, in a different order. Okay, normally we, we read it, we go back to verse 1, we dive right in. This morning we're going to read it, uh, we're going to go back to verse 5, and we're going to kind of dive in. Okay, so just follow along. Here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and are gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." 
who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance of his coming. That is the one who, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who do not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. Okay, so here's the text. Already a lot of questions. What are we going to do with all this? Here we go. Verse 5. In verse 5, Paul gives us, the readers, 2,000 years later, a little heads up. Okay, what's the heads up? He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Okay, so Paul, for whatever time he was in Thessalonica, right, Acts 17, give or take, somewhere in that range, uh, he's, he's talking to them, he's reasoning with them in the synagogue. We've read about that back in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, in that time, when the church is first starting, he apparently goes through some sort of message, some sort of topic, conversation, whatever this looked like, about what things are going to do in the end times. Okay, so verse 5, he's saying, don't you remember that, that we've already kind of walked through these things? Okay, so, so why am I bringing that up? Because I think there's going to be a lot of things that Paul's just assuming the reader's already going to know. Okay, so, so he's not going to go into super great detail because he's just bringing, bringing things back to mind. So this, in my mind, is not a, a, the text that we would go to if you want to know what's going to happen in the, in the second coming. Right, like, like Paul said, I taught you this in person. Here's a couple reminders. So it's not going to be as in deep. It's not going to be all these other things. Why? Because he's already taught it to them. Okay, what's the point then of this passage, right? Chapter 1, he obviously didn't write in chapters, but that first idea, which we now call chapter 1, was about persecution. Okay, what's the idea then that he's trying to get at in chapter 2? We'll look at verse 2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Okay, uh, back to, uh, what is it, verse 1? Anyway, the idea is what? Is that Jesus came. Jesus had already come. Right? Um, so verse 3, we'll get to that in just a second. He's not going to come until the man of lawlessness comes. Okay, but it's this idea of what? That you wouldn't be shaken, you wouldn't be disturbed. Okay, so, so somewhere in this, this passage that we're in, he's saying what? I want you to know what you believe. I want you to be firmly planted in that. I want you to be able to stand firm. Okay, so, so as we walk through this, uh, we're, again, we're going to be like, man, this doesn't seem to help at all. Like, like this seems to be more confusing at some point. And yet the, the goal of all of this is that you wouldn't waver. That last phrase in verse 2. Uh, or by a mess or, or spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Apparently, what was happening in that day is that people were speaking and writing and then putting Paul's name at the end of it. 
and saying, guess what Paul said? Oh, do you remember? Like, and now they're taking what Paul said and they've changed it. So now the church in Thessalonica, who knows Paul, who knows Silas, who knows Timothy, like they started the church here, are now being told by false teachers that this is really from Paul. Right? And what's Paul saying? He's saying, no, don't believe those things. Let me explain it to you. Okay? Now, all the way down to the last verse in chapter 2, verse 16, which is going to be for next week, so I'm going to try not to spend too much time on it here. Verse 17, sorry, not 16, verse 17. He's praying this prayer, and the prayer is directly tied to everything else in chapter 2. Okay? So man of lawlessness, apostasy, all these things that we're going to walk through this morning, it's directly tied to those things. And what does he pray for them in verse 17? That, that this would what? Comfort and strengthen. God would comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and deed. Okay, so there's two thoughts on this, and, and I think one, hopefully, is going to be pretty obvious. The thoughts are this. He could say, I'm praying that God would comfort you and strengthen you because what I just explained to you is so incredibly horribly bad and so incredibly destructive and like impossible that you're going to be so brokenhearted after reading this. I'm going to pray that God would comfort you. Or the other thought would be this letter that he wrote, this passage that he just goes through is meant to comfort and strengthen you. So it's not like a doomsday, like, woe is me. This is so horrible. We just need God's comfort in the middle of this as much as I think it's Paul's writing this so that it would be comforting and strengthening to the believers. And now his prayer is that this letter would accomplish what he's hoping it would accomplish and that it would comfort and strengthen the people who received it. Okay, so this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is for what reason? I think it's for comfort and to strengthen the church. Which again, I, I'm not trying to, you know, 80s, 90s, whenever it was real popular to make the, the prophecy conferences. I'm not trying to say, like, praise God for them, they studied their Bible. Okay? But for me to say, here's a chart, and here's when the man of lawlessness will appear, and here's what I think this country is going to do, and like, like, that's not strengthening and comforting anybody. Right? I think we missed the point. So this morning, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of work through the text, but we're going to skip a little passage and come back to that at the end. So verse 3. Verse 1, here's the coming of Lord Jesus. Verse 2, don't be, don't be shaken, don't be disturbed by these things as to when the Lord is going to come. So now we get to verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Okay, some of your translations may say something about falling away, rejecting the truth. Okay, Paul doesn't, that's it, right? There's no more explanation about apostasy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is it. So, the, you might have more questions than answers. I already warned you. Okay, what does this mean? What is the falling away from? Okay, here's just a couple different options. I'm not going to tell you which one I believe because that's not worth it, I don't think. Okay, a couple different options. One is the church. Uh, the church would reject the teaching of Jesus. Uh, believers would reject the teaching of Jesus at some level. Uh, some people would say those who look like the church but aren't really the church. Like So there's going to be those who, who would profess Christ at some level but not really know Christ, not have a relationship with them. They just played church for a long time and, and they're going to leave and they're going to walk out. Others would look at this as a national level. That, that there's going to be nations who would, who would maybe not profess Christ but would do good that would promote righteousness and justice. They would take care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. They would do things that were good and godly at some level, and they're going to turn to wickedness and evil. Okay, can we just, can we just pause for a moment? It might be something else, but maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's just a bunch of individuals who are turning. Right? What, whatever it is, can we not just pause and recognize that this is nothing new? Right? We've seen nations that would promote righteousness and justice and centuries later would no longer be a nation that promotes righteousness and justice. 
We've seen people who've played church for long enough and then they left the church. We've seen people who would profess Jesus who would walk out. So at some level, we've experienced this from the, from the time of Jesus, probably even before, of some people saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, and yet I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm going to reject the truth. Okay, so there's some sort of falling away. There's some sort of rejection. Some commentators think it's a specific event. Like, like there's going to be a time when, when there's going to be a, a rally, a conference. I don't know what they're going to call it, but some big event where some guy's going to speak and he's going to promote ways that are against God and against his word and calling people to follow after that. And there's going to be this like revival, backwards revival to, away from God. And there's, like we would see it and we're like, oh, that's, that's it. Okay, but whatever it is, apparently the church in Thessalonica already knows about it. Right? Because he says the apostasy has to come first. Like, Jesus hasn't come yet. Why? Because I told you about this apostasy and that hasn't happened yet. I told you about the falling away. It hasn't happened, so we know Jesus hasn't come yet. Uh, the apostasy apparently is tied to a person. Right? And, and maybe not directly, but at least some, somehow it's going to be centered close to uh, around the time of this man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is revealed. There, he has this other title besides the man of lawlessness, and that is what? Verse 3, the son of destruction. Okay, let's just talk about his, his titles. Lawlessness is what? I don't care about the law. Right? I, I don't want a law. I don't think, I, I'm, I'm not putting myself under a law. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's the spirit of lawlessness. Okay, son of destruction. We maybe use the idea of sons of something, uh, what this means is this, is this is who you are, like this is your characteristic. This is your nature. Okay, so, so if you never met my dad, but you knew me, at some level you kind of know my dad. Right? We share the same last name. We, sh- we share the same hairdo. Like, like there's just certain things about my dad and I that, that are similar. The way we talk, the things we're interested in. Like, like you might not know my dad perfectly, but you'd at least get a picture of who my dad is. Like you wouldn't meet my dad and be like, oh man, I, nothing I picture is Like, no, you'd probably, if you knew me, if you knew my brother, like, you'd somewhat know my dad. Okay, same idea would go with this phrase. The son of destruction. If destruction was a person, this person would be then qualified as their son, which means what? Which means he has the same characteristics as his dad. He looks like him, he talks like him, he acts like him, he's got the same goals, he's got the same mind. Okay, so destruction is what this guy is known for. This is what he does. Like, this is his characteristic. Okay, we're going to do this later, but I'm going to just pause and do this now. When we think of this man of lawlessness, he is the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? Sermon on the Mount. He came to fulfill the law. What does that mean? It means he obeyed it perfectly. Man of lawlessness, his title alone would suggest to us he doesn't care about the, the word of God, doesn't care about the law. Right? He's the son of destruction. And what did Jesus do? He came to bring what? To bring life. The exact opposite of destruction. And so what we're going to see over and over again is here's a man of lawlessness who's the exact opposite of everything Jesus is for. He's going to promise things. He's going to say things. He's going to do things that are going to make people want to believe him. But, but all in all, he's, he's the exact opposite of everything Jesus would be. Okay, let's keep going in the text. Who is this man of lawlessness? We get to verse 4. He opposes, him, uh, he opposes this, the idea of what? Of so-called gods or objects of worship. Okay, so he's against all these other religions. Not only is he against those religions, there's another verb here, and he exalts himself above every other so-called God or object of worship. Okay, so, so he's going to stand here, and he's not going to be necessarily, seemingly, for any religion that's, that's here, at some level. He's going to oppose them, and yet he's going to do what? He's going to exalt himself and say that he's the object of worship. So, so don't worship that God. Don't, don't follow that ritual. Don't do those things. He's going he's to lead people away from 
religion, true or false, some, apparently all types of religion, and he's going to say what? Look at me and worship me. Okay? So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Okay, that first thought of opposing and exalting other religions. That's not too hard. Like, exalt yourself. Like, we've seen that. We've seen people who want to be worshipped throughout history. Okay? This phrase is a little bit harder. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Why is that a little bit harder? Well, it's a little bit harder right now because there is no temple. Right? I mean, you could go New Testament and be like, hey, we, the church, are the temple of God. Okay, cool, but then what do you do with that phrase? Like, he's going to take a seat in the church? Is that what we're saying? Like, again, we're going to have more questions than answers. Is he going to set up his kingdom on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? There's a story of Caligula or something like that, some Roman emperor who, who was, his goal was to put a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple. Like that was, that was, and that was happening in the day of Paul. Like there's rumors and plans to put a statue of a Roman emperor in God's temple in Jerusalem. Like is that, is that the picture? Is that what we're thinking? Like he's just going to make a statue and put it up in every church. He's going to make a statue and put it up in Jerusalem. Like what does all this mean? We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we do know this. How is the temple described? It's the temple of who? Of God. It's not his temple. It's not the man of lawlessness's temple. It's God's temple. And so what is he doing? He's trying to steal something that belongs to God and make it his own. Right? He, he doesn't have a temple. He doesn't have his own. Like, what is he doing? He's, he's robbing God, if you will. And you can't necessarily do that. God owns everything still. Duly noted. But he's robbing God and saying, this is mine. This temple that should be God's, this temple that should be used to glorify God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and use it for my own little kingdom. Kind of bigger than a little one, but it's still not God's kingdom. Okay? So, what have we seen? We've seen he's going to uh, oppose other religions. He's going to exalt himself above other religions. And he's going to try and steal, rob some sort of temple, some sort of glory from God and call it his own. Verse 4 still. Displaying himself as being God. Okay? So, so at some level. Not only is he saying he's going to be worshipped or should be worshipped or however that's going to look, at some level he's saying that he is God himself. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to do this some more, but let's just pause and do it again. Have we not seen throughout history somebody who would exalt himself above all other religions? Have we not seen somebody throughout history that would take something that would be for the glory of God and for God and try to take it to themselves? Like, like have we not seen somebody who would say, I am God? Like, have we not seen that? And the answer is yes, we've seen it over and over again. Like, we can go back to Pharaoh, and maybe it's not a perfect illustration in every instance, but here's a, a Pharaoh back in Exodus with Moses that believes he's smarter than God, knows better than God, more powerful than God, and that he himself is God. Right? Like, like we've already seen that. You can go to Nebuchadnezzar. You can go to, to the king of the north in the book of Daniel. And, like, example after example after example, at some level where here's someone who says, hey, I should be worshipped, I'm better than God, I know more than God, whatever the situation is, and, and, and over and over again, we've seen that, okay? You can go to Paul's time, and there's Roman emperors who would, who would, who would fall in this, this category. And so, again, like, this man of lawlessness, is he a person? Yes, I think he's a person. But is he new? I don't think he's that new. This has been around. In fact, look at verse 7. We're going to come back to verse 7 later. But look at verse 7. It says what? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay, your translation might have a different word for mystery. Some say secret power. Uh, some say like spirit of lawlessness idea. Uh, but what's the picture? The picture is that he is this man of lawlessness and lawlessness is nothing new to us. Right? We've seen it in our culture. We've seen it from probably Adam and Eve till today. 
Okay, so is this guy going to maybe take it to a different level? Is something else going to happen? Yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. But the spirit of lawlessness is nothing new. We've seen it in leaders. We could go to Roman emperors. We could go from AD uh, 100 or whatever Roman emperors were. Like, we could go all the way to 2023, and we probably could look at throughout history at men who, were, who raised up, wanted to be exalted, wanted to be worshipped, wanted to do these things, and yet it, they failed, right? It didn't work. Like, throughout history, we've seen this mystery, the spirit, the secret power of lawlessness outwork over and over and over again. Okay, we're not done with this man of lawlessness. We're going to skip verses 6, 7, and 8, though, and we're going to look at verse 9. Okay, talking about this man of lawlessness, it says, The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Okay, so, so what do we know about him? That he wants to be worshipped, he wants to be God, he's going to steal things from God and call it his own, and he's doing all of this with what? With the activity or the planning or the power, however you want to word some of those things, of Satan. Okay, Think of Jesus. How did Jesus come? Submitting himself to the will of the Father, of a perfect, pure, holy God. How does the man of lawlessness come? With the activity of Satan. And then he says this in verse 9, with all power and signs and false wonders. Who is that talking about? I think that's talking about the man of lawlessness. He's receiving power from Satan. And this power is manifested how? I think it's manifested here in signs and false wonders. Okay, signs and wonders throughout the scriptures is talking about what? It talks about miracles. Jesus would do signs and wonders. Like you would talk about signs and wonders as some sort of miraculous thing that would take place. Okay, so what is a false wonder? Okay, because I think this is, we should understand what he's saying here. Two ideas. One is not really a miracle, right? It looks like one, but it's not. Okay, so, so I'm not trying to downplay that opinion. Like people smarter than I have said that. But at some level, I don't think it's just a magic trick. Like, like, I don't think he's just going to pull a bunch of coins out of a bunch of people with different ears and be like, hey, I'm, I'm God, you should worship me. Right? Like, I, I think this idea of signs and false wonders is that he will do miraculous things. But Jesus did miraculous things. Why? So that you might believe that he is the Son of God, that you might believe the truth, that you might know him and, and believe in him, and you might follow him. And here's the truth of the Word of God. And, and let's do signs and wonders so that they might believe the truth. And he's doing signs and wonders. Why? So that you would believe a lie. So let's do signs, let's do wonders, let's do these miraculous things for the whole reason of what? That people would believe the lie, that he is worthy of worship, the man of lawlessness is worthy of worship, that maybe he's God, that maybe he's the one we should worship and trust and believe. Okay, so it's false wonders, meaning not that the wonders are false, but that the, the end result is that we would believe a lie. Okay, verse 10, he has all deception and wickedness, which is no wonder why, because it's, that's who Satan is. He's coming in the power of Satan, who's known as the deceiver. And so why would it not happen that this man of lawlessness would come with all deception? Okay, but what we're going to see now is we're going to see kind of verse 10 is this transition from here's the description of the man of lawlessness to here's the description of those who would follow after the man of lawlessness. Okay, so what does it look like for those who would follow after the man of lawlessness? Well, it says in verse 10, with all deception of wickedness for who? For those who perish. So those who are deceived by the man of lawlessness, those who would worship him to follow him, how are they described as those who perish? Okay, verse 10, second half of verse 10 is going to be kind of hard. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Okay, why is that hard? Because in the English, it sounds like they weren't given the opportunity to be saved. Like, it sounds like they did not receive, like, they weren't given this opportunity to believe the truth so that they might experience salvation, and that's not what the Greek says. It's more this picture of that they rejected. 
They rejected the truth, which we'll see again here in a little bit. Verse 11. Again, it's not going to be easy. This verse isn't any easier than the second half of verse 10. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Okay, this, like, what do we, what do, we do with verse 11? Like, this seems very difficult. And yet, it wouldn't be the first time that we would find something similar to this in the Bible. Right? You go back to Pharaoh. We've already mentioned him. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Like, like how do we handle that one? For me, I think this is more in line with Romans 1. Like you would rather worship the creation rather than the creator. And you think yourself to be smarter and better than God. And you've lived a life that says, I'm better than God. I know more than God. All these things. And what does God say in Romans 1? Paul says through the Holy Spirit there in Romans 1, what? That God gives them over their depraved mind. This is what you want. This is, this is what you wanted with your life. All right, go and have it. Okay, so what do we see here? I think we see verse 10. Here's people who have rejected the truth that would lead to salvation. In verse 11, here's God's punishment on those who rejected the truth. He says, all right, if that's what you want, here you go. And at some level, he's giving them over to what they want, which is believing what is false. You want the man of lawlessness? You want the spirit of lawlessness that pervades our culture today? Here you go. This is yours. Verse 12. In order that they all may be judged, this is the end for all of those who would put their their hope and belief in a man of lawlessness and the spirit of lawlessness who would reject the word of God. They would all be judged who did not believe the truth. And then this last phrase in, in verse 12, I mean, it, is, it is our culture. It's been the culture of every culture probably forever, but it's our culture for sure today. Took pleasure in wickedness. Now, as we would read that in English, we would think that they did something incredibly wicked and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, yeah that felt so good. Like, that's not the point. The Greek here is more of they approved wickedness. So what did they do back in verse 10 and 11 was this picture of they rejected the truth. And then the end of verse 12 is what? That they put their stamp of approval on wickedness. So what are they doing is they're looking at good. They're looking at God. They're looking at the law. They're looking at his word. And they're calling that evil. And they're looking at evil, this man of lawlessness, the spirit of lawlessness. And they're calling that good. Like if that's not 2023, if that's not humanity, probably since the beginning of time, then I don't know what is. Where we always, as a culture, seem to struggle to call good, good, and evil, evil. Like, like for some reason, we can't do that. For some reason, we, we have the spirit inside of our culture that says, hey, let's call good evil, and let's call what we want to do in the evil, all, let's call all that good. Okay, so all that to say what? None of this is new. Right? We, we've experienced it. We've seen it. For some of us in our own lives, we've done this. Okay? So, so, just kind of a rundown, though. We see this man of lawlessness who's, who's, who's what is he known for? Right? He's known for uh, not obeying the law of God, right? That's what lawlessness means. He's known for destruction. He brings destruction. He leads to destruction. He's destroying things. Uh, he wants to be worshipped. He tries to take the place of the one true God. He is powerful, doing signs and wonders, and he's led by Satan. Right? And, and the people who follow him, what are they? It says they're perished, they're judged. You know, here's all these things of where their, their way goes. In contrast to Jesus, who, what did he do? He obeyed all of God's laws. He brings life. He doesn't bring destruction. He's rightfully worshipped. He is one with the Father. He submits his will to the Father, like that Philippians 2 passage. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but he still submits himself. Like, here's someone who, who has no right to be equal with God, and he's trying to become equal with God. He's led by the Spirit, not by Satan. Right? And so what do we see? We see a man of lawlessness who leads to, to, to judgment, to perishing, to, to eternal separation from God. We see Jesus, who's the exact opposite, who brings life and leads people to, to the Father. 
Okay, now, all that to say, in verse 17, we said what? That this passage was meant to what? Comfort and strengthen your hearts. So far, there's been very little comforting and strengthening in my mind. Right? Like, here's a man of lawlessness who's powerful, led by Satan, and he's coming. And so, church in Thessalonica, you haven't missed the return of Jesus, so maybe that's comforting and, and encouraging. Yet, at the same time, there's still this guy who hasn't shown up on the scene yet, and I feel like that's not so comforting and, and encouraging. So, where's the comfort? Where's the strengthening? that Paul will talk about. Those are in the verses we skipped. Look at verse 6. Okay, so here's this man of lawlessness. He's going to do his thing, but we get to verse 6. And, and Paul, again, verse 5, he, he says what? that we, We've already talked about this, and so verse 6, we're going to see that. And you know, why? Because we've already talked about it. And you know what restrains him, the man of lawlessness, now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Okay, so, so just from our surface reading, you know, we grew up in church, we know the answer probably. But just in our surface reading, what does verse 6 mean? It means that there's something or someone more powerful than him. Right? Because, because according to verse 6, it sounds like the man of lawlessness and this activity of Satan would be happening in the here and now at this moment, apart from the fact that somebody's restraining him. Somebody's holding him back. So verse 6, just reading the text, someone or something would be more powerful than him. Okay, what does he say in verse 6? And you know what? Like you church in Thessalonica, you already know what this is. Part of me wishes he would have explained it anyway. We know it's God, right? Probably more specifically, it's probably more specifically even his spirit. So the spirit of God is restraining this man of lawlessness. But notice the second half of verse 6. Not only is the spirit of God, God more powerful, God greater, like those things over this man of lawlessness, but into verse 6. So that in his time, I would assume that would be God's time, he, the man of lawlessness, will be revealed. So, so, so again, here's God who's much more powerful than the man of lawlessness. He can restrain all this. But not only that, but it's God's timeline that we're working on. This isn't like God's holding him back until we can't hold him back any longer. This is God easily holding him back and saying, hey, I'm going to let you loose on my timeline, not on yours. So you're a church and you're in Thessalonica and, and Jesus hasn't come yet. Why? Because there's no apostasy. There's no man of lawlessness. Ooh, that sounds scary. And all of a sudden we read verse 6. It's like, no, here's a God who's more powerful. Like it's not, it's not even close. Then you read verse 7. We already talked about the mystery of lawlessness. But then he says there at the end of that, mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Okay, again, that might sound like in English that taken out of the way means like overcome, but really I think it means God the Father would take the Spirit out of the way. So God the Father takes God the Spirit and removes him and removes this restraining power so that in his timeline, this man of lawlessness is revealed. Not according to Satan's plan, not according to the man of lawlessness' plan, but according to the plan of God. And then we get to verse 8. Like verse 8 Man, I, I, all of so verse 6, verse 7, I think it's comfort. I think it's strengthening. Verse 8, just kind of, holy cow. Then the lawless one will be revealed when God allows him to be. Okay? So, so there, let me pause here for a second. I kind of said this, but let me, some people think that this law, the man of lawlessness is going to be a, a movement, a group of people, uh, uh, whatever. Right? And it's not going to be a specific individual. Okay? I'm going to say... For what it's worth, I think the mystery of lawlessness, the spirit of lawlessness, the secret power of lawlessness already work today. I do think it's going to be an individual who stands up in the future. Okay, so I, I do think there's going to be one man, uh, one person who's revealed. Could it be a movement? Could it be a group of people? Sure, it could be. But I think it's going to be one person who would stand up and, and is revealed in this day. Okay, so here's this person who's leading it, who's powered by Satan, who's all these things that we've already said. 
Okay? He is revealed, and notice how Paul, through the Holy Spirit, would, would describe this man of lawlessness in the next phrase. Whom the Lord, that is Jesus, will slay with his breath. Of all the things that we just said about the man of lawlessness and how powerful he is and signs and false wonders and powered by Satan and all these things, like he doesn't stand a chance. Because in verse 8, it says that Jesus shows up and he breathes. And the man of lawlessness is slayed. Like, do we really realize the power of the God that we serve? This morning, we sang, my God is so big, so strong, so mighty. Like, yeah, he is big and strong and mighty. And he can speak and he can destroy his enemy. Like at some level, this would bring us back all the way to Genesis 1. Here's a God who speaks the world into existence, and somehow we doubt his power in the here and now. Like we're in this church age, as if you want to call it, and we doubt his power. We think the world's too powerful. We think every, And it's like, no, no, no. We serve a king who will speak, and his enemies will be slain. Notice what else it says. That, that you slay with the breath of his mouth, and Jesus will bring to an end. That by the appearance of his coming, bring to an end. That could be referring just to the man of lawlessness. I think it's, I think it's more than that. I think there's this idea that, that he will slay the man of lawlessness, so that's to an end, but bring to an end what? This whole mystery, this whole spirit of lawlessness. This whole idea of calling good evil and evil good, like all of this world's promoting and the lawless culture that we live in, Jesus is putting all of that to an end at, at the appearance of his coming. Like everything will be made right again. Okay, so, so now, looking at verses 6, 7, and 8, looking down to verse 17, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Like, yeah, for sure. If, if I were to say this morning, let's go last week. Let's start last week. If we were to say last week in the persecuted church, like persecuted church, you can do this. Why? Because you, cause Jesus, right? It's his kingdom. You're following after him. Like, you can do it. I don't know if that would really, like, I mean, hopefully it would. I don't know if I can. And then you read this passage this week, you probably read it all at the same time, but you got to this passage in chapter 2, and it's like, no, we're not just serving, like, we're serving Jesus, Son of God, all the, but the one who can slay the enemy with, the, with, the, with his breath. Like, man, just be reminded of his power. If I were to say this morning, hey, we're going to spend the afternoon trying to build God's kingdom. Like, we're going to go out into our culture. We're going to go out in our community. We're going to try and build the kingdom of God. For some of us, that would strike up fear. I mean, I'm in that group. Like, to, I'm not here like, oh, I would have no fear. No, I'd, I'd be leading the charge of fear, right? Like, that would be me. And yet, at some level, we've forgotten verse 8. At some level, we've forgotten that we serve the king who, who spoke this world into existence. We forget the fact that, that we serve a king who is eternal. We forget the fact that we serve a king who's going to come and make everything right again. So it doesn't matter the persecution we face. It doesn't matter the mocking we might get when we try to build his kingdom. It doesn't matter those things. Why? Because we serve a king who is all-powerful. And so when we walk out of here this morning, and when we go into our culture later, you know, Monday morning, work culture, whatever we're in, like we go not in our own power, we go with the power of God. And that is the power that has, that has life, that brings life, Genesis 1, has the power of, 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 of changing lives. And yet you look at the American church today, and we're scared, and we're timid, and, and we want to hide in the corner. And it's like Paul's not writing this letter to be like, church, you should be scared. Paul's not writing this letter to be like, church, I, I hope you can make it. Like, like I'm not sure how it's going to end up, but, but hopefully you can, like, no, church, you serve Jesus, you will make it. Because there's no one more powerful than him. And so this morning, as we close, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper this morning, but as we close, part of the Lord's Supper is that we would do this in remembrance until he comes. And, and, and what, a, what a thing to remember until he comes, that here's the one who's all-powerful, who would slay the enemy with his breath. 
Here's the one who comes and, and, and puts everything back in its place so that good would be good and evil would be called evil. Here's the one who will rule and reign perfectly. So as we would observe the Lord's Supper, as we think about this text, like, Jesus, we long for that day. We want that day in the here and now. As we think about this Savior who has come and rescued us, may it, may it change how we live in, in this moment, this week. God, you've given me your power. You've given me your, your strength. May we go out of here as a church that is powerful because our King is powerful. Let's pray, and then we will observe the Lord's Supper this morning. Heavenly Father, I can't imagine what the church in Thessalonica would, would, was going through, the persecution they faced. Uh, loss of family members, loss of homes, loss of life. I can't imagine the struggle it would be in their, in their time to think that Jesus already came, that they missed it, and that this is what their life is, uh, a persecuted life. And then to think that Paul would write this letter and give them this picture in chapter 2, that that they serve a king, we serve a king that is all-powerful. That no enemy can stand against him. That no enemy on that final day will have a chance. Like, God, what an encouragement to a persecuted church. God, for us this morning, may that encourage us to go build your kingdom. Because there's a day coming when someone will, will appear on the scene who will deceive who will, who, will, who will cause people to believe a lie. Those people will be judged. They will, be, they will perish. They will be separated from you for all eternity. God, not only do we have the truth, but we have the power of the one who spoke everything into existence. So God, help us. Help us to make a difference. Help us to build your kingdom. Help us to go out not as fearful, timid believers, but help us to go out knowing we have your spirit and your power in us to build your kingdom. So God, use us. Use us to build your kingdom. Use us to grow your church. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.